This is episode 142 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Six Critical Items That Have Disappeared in the Immediate Aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, Ten Best Survival Tents for Survival and Preparedness, and What Happened to the Christian Warrior. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, a lot of things going on right now uh, in our in our nation and in the world. Um, so we've got we've got Hurricane Irma bearing down, and uh, some of the the video that you can see or that you have found, if it's legitimate, I posted. I shared one to the Prepper website, uh, uh, the regular page, not the Facebook group, and um, it was uh, someone said, that, "Hey, this is, this has been going around for a long time." So uh, you know, somebody tags it with Hurricane Irma, and so it's hard to vet every single video and thing out there. So I shared it, and of course comes back to bite you on the butt but uh, you know the news is showing some things that are out there and it's just crazy the video I think they said on the Virgin Islands uh, one of the islands 100% of the homes are damaged or have water in them and uh, it's just going to uh, you know Irma is going to continue coming uh, I keep I'm looking at Space City weather uh, I've linked to that I'm going to continue to link uh, link to that as well if you're interested in that because they are just giving updates there I do have a friend who is a uh, a retired principal who uh, really, you know, worked for her for a year, but she's a really great friend, and um, she uh, she was here in Houston with her daughter during Harvey, but they have a boat and they live on, off of a, on a boat uh, in Florida, so they're headed over there, and uh, she just made a mention that they're they're heading over there to make sure everything's okay and to batten down the the boat and everything. But it says, uh, we stopped several times once we hit Florida to buy a gas can here, water there, more batteries and flashlights, etc. It is almost impossible to get water. Gas stations are out of gas or have long lines, bare shells. It's crazy. So, again, uh, one reason why we prepare you so you're not having to fight all that, all that stuff. So you're able to get to the important things like taking care of your, your house and locking it down and doing whatever you need to do. Um, the issue here with Irma is we don't know exactly where it's going. So um, maybe people who are thinking about uh, evacuating Florida are starting to think twice maybe because it looks like the storm might be on the east side of, of uh, the state and might uh, kind of go that way and then wind up hitting uh, you know some of the some of the east coast up north like I, I think someone t well someone had mentioned it earlier before maybe like Georgia North Carolina and I, I talked about that earlier on the podcast uh, and so that's possible that's a possibility it just kind of depends you don't really know from what I'm reading we they don't really know where it's going to go uh, up until like maybe Friday right so we still have a couple of more days to be able to really narrow it down which way it's going to go. Uh, but it's, Florida is still going to get uh, damage there. There are some reports. Someone sent me uh, a report about some nuclear uh, nuclear um, uh, plants that are in danger there. I don't know. I mean, I, I am going to link to that article on uh, Prepper website. 
uh, this evening, so it'll be there tomorrow morning if you're uh, if you're reading this, or I'm sorry, if you're list- listening to this and you want to go read that article, it'll be there. Uh, so that's a, a concern there. Uh, and then that's not the only thing that's going on. We have fires going on all over the place, uh, it seems like. Uh, I listened, or I'm sorry, I read, uh, received an email from uh, someone that I, uh, I care about greatly. We, we uh, go back and forth on email on a, on a regular basis and talk about preparedness and spiritual matters. Uh, this is what was sent to me in, in an email today. Well, we all had the worst, the worst the world offers show up for the eclipse. So many of the people came for a new age fair and concerts and for the eclipse. Our local highways were bumper to bumper and gasoline stations ran out of gas. The area has been lucky in that we didn't get the forest fires that are that they are experiencing elsewhere in Oregon. But we are getting lots of smoke from these fires, making it difficult to breathe. In Eugene, the smoke was so thick that there was zero visibility on the roads and main highways. Very dangerous. The Columbia Gorge is ablaze, which is unheard of. Lightning strikes caused most of these fires, but emergency crews were stretched thin due to the eclipse. Too many got away for too long, causing much more damage. I wish we got some of your rain, so we need prayer for rain. So we have uh, we have fires, we have earthquakes, uh, you know, going off in Idaho. Uh, you know that that's continued continuing to swarm. Uh, we have hurricanes happening. Um, and then one of the things that I want to bring out here, and this is, uh, uh, well, most of you will know, uh, and those of you that are on the Facebook group will know that we uh, rece- have received a couple of solar flares recently, or the, the sun has popped off a couple of solar flares lately. And we're going to have some back-to-back CMEs. Um, I always follow Suspicious Observer. I also follow Solar Ham on Facebook. And, uh, you know, just to see what's going on. And uh, uh, Suspicious Observer, Ben, uh, put out an, uh, another video later this, uh, this afternoon on what was going on. And to be honest, I've never really heard Ben kind of talk about it this way because uh, he, he mentioned that there's going, you know, the back-to-back solar flares and the CMEs that we're getting. Um, he talked about that there's a possibility for uh, grid disruption. And then he said 10% uh, is kind of, uh, I guess you have to read between the lines, uh, 10% global disruption. And he said, uh, that is what you think, uh, that is what you think it is. And he goes, I did go to the store and very calmly, uh, you know, brush up on my, uh, on my preps or, or, you know, uh, topped off, I guess. I can't remember the exact word that he used. I'm not a, a sun or a solar flare expert or anything like that. That's why I go to Suspicious Observer. But, uh, you know, that's something that um, that has happened recently. So on top of everything, uh, it's kind of kind of crazy out there. So uh, that's why we prep. That's why we stay calm. That's why we stay aware uh, of what's going on, just so we are informed. So I will link to Suspicious Observer's video there. Uh, probably though, by the time you start listening to this podcast, that's going to be old news. He'll come out with a new video, uh, and you can go to his YouTube channel, Suspicious Observer, or on the Facebook group. You know, it posts every day. We, I have it on an automatic uh, feed, so it automatically posts there. So you can go check that out over there. All right, so let's go ahead, and uh, I think that's everything that I wanted to touch base on. Uh, there's just so many things 
kind of up in the air and going on. Uh, you're just like, wow, uh, your head could spin sometime. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, the first article comes to us from readynutrition.com. And uh, this article is uh, talking about six critical items that have disappeared in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. And uh, because we are, you know, in a very busy, it looks like hurricane season right now, it's just things to keep in the back of your head. If you're not, if you're, if you're on the coast and maybe you're not, uh, you know, you're worrying about uh, Hurricane Irma right now, it's quite possible you might be, you know, in a hurricane, uh, you know, later on down the road or not even just a hurricane, but any kind of situation where, you know, things might start running, you know, the, the stores might start running out of supplies or people might start panicking or things that you, you, you know that you need to stock up on. These probably would fit the bill there. So I just kind of wanted to read this and you can keep these things in the back of your mind. Before something like Hurricane Harvey, who would have imagined the kind of destruction that would literally immobilize a major U.S. metropolitan area for what could potentially be weeks, if not months? As of this writing, we're 72 hours into the aftermath of this major disaster, and supplies are already running low. Amid the images of loss and destruction, hurricane survivors know they must restock provisions to prepare for another week or more of sheltering in place. Now, imagine 6.2 million people trying to stock up at the same time. Panic buying is gripping the affected area and beginning to overload local and regional communities. Ahead of the hurricane, making landfall, the vast majority of people simply figured that the aftermath would, at most, last a few days. No one ever contemplated that real possibility that this scenario would be the end result or believed they would have to evacuate after the storm hit. In fact, many have evacuated the city and moved to other Texas towns, and now those areas are beginning to exhaust supplies as well. In any disaster, when the need of the people are strained, frustration can quickly descend into a breakdown. While this is something no one wants to see happen, with a disaster such as this one, it is very easy to see how it can overwhelm government emergency response plans. Quote, in an article explaining the breakdowns that occur after disasters, it was written, when the needs of the population cannot be met in an allotted time frame, a phenomenon occurs and the mindset shifts in people. They begin to act without thinking and respond to changes in their environment in an emotionally based manner, thus leading to chaos, instability, and a breakdown in our social paradigm, end quote. This is what is to be expected when so many people are hit with a rapid, far-from-equilibrium event. Keeping up with the desperate and immediate demands of hundreds of thousands of people will undoubtedly be a challenge in and of itself, and supply trucks can only be so, do so much. Especially with floodwaters still standing on highway systems, those living in the aftermath have a long road ahead of them, and knowing which items disappear off the shelves first can help them better prepare and stay on top of their personal supplies. Just 72 hours after this disaster, here are the five supplies that have become difficult or impossible to find. Gasoline. Concerns over closed refineries and disrupted pipelines erupted into a full-blown panic run on gasolines across, gasoline across Texas cities. Here's the crazy thing. The shortages are not just happening in the greater Houston area, but 200 miles north in Dallas, as well as in the cities of Austin and San Antonio, Texas. The panic for gas is so insane that we are seeing gas lines that have been likened to the 1970s. And so uh, 
This was written by Tess Pennington, uh, the owner over at Ready Nutrition. And so she has some uh, some Twitter, or I'm sorry, some Facebook. She's embedded some Facebook pictures uh, and posts. Uh, while state officials are saying there is no need to worry, things are getting real in Texas, and whether they want to admit the situation is beginning to get heated, so much so that reports of fistfights for fuel are popping up. So there's a video here that she's linking to. Second item is water. Clean drinking water, the main staple in any disaster supply, is quickly being purchased faster than they can restock it. If hurricane victims do not have a high-quality water filter, they have to take their chances finding a store that has been restocked. In the flood-ravaged areas, critical infrastructure has been damaged, making it difficult for trucks to resupply the affected area, thus adding to the panic buying. Desperate residents do not know when this disaster area will normalize, so they want to grab supplies when they can to ensure their family has what they need. In the city of Beaumont, things have become dire since the city shut off the municipal water supply, leaving 100,000 people with no other option but to hunt for water in surrounding areas as well as the local hospital, had to close its doors out of fear of water contamination, one of many immediate post-disaster threats we've discovered in a previous article. Quote, CNN reports that city officials plan to establish a water distribution point on Friday. Meanwhile, earlier Thursday, residents lined up at store hours before they opened in hopes to getting water bottled or whatever bottled water they could find. It's crazy, said uh, Kevin Williams, who started waiting in line at Market Basket at 6.50 a.m., people are freaking out. At a local Walmart, Jeffrey Farley said the store was only allowing 20 people in at a time and was rationing water to three cases per person. He cut in line, I'm sorry, he got in line at 6.30 a.m. and waited until 8.30 to get his water. And, um, you know, the, One of the problems with just having a water filter, though, is if you don't have a supply of clean water or you don't know the contaminated water, you don't know exactly what's in that contaminated water, you really can't just go off of that. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's one reason why you just, you, just having a water filter in some of these instances might not prove, uh, you know, prove to be beneficial. Um, so uh, you have the water situation here. I was, uh, earlier today I saw a, a tweet by, uh, uh, Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart's uh, website, Peak Prosperity, uh, where they were showing a guy who uh, was loading up water. People were getting cases of water, and he had a flatbed, and he was just loading up cases and cases for himself. And uh, you could see that people were like, they thought maybe like he was part of the store, and he was, you know, that they were going to come grab one, and he, you know, gets on to them for doing that because, you know, he was so desperate, and it was. It was a situation of just hoarding, uh, you know, where other people were just taking one case at a time. But people start acting crazy when you're, you're told that you can't get it, right? Um, so uh, the next thing here is food staples. The first food items that will sell out most consist of things that are already cooked or prepared in some way, including canned foods, frozen dishes, and bread. Fresh meat and eggs would also disappear pretty fast, despite the fact that they need to be cooked. And that is what we are seeing now. Food staples like milk, bread, and eggs are all in high demand. Lines are forming outside of stores that are open to the public, and these essential items run out fast. In fact, grocery stores are putting limits on how much you can buy. In this report, one store manager in the area admits to the food limits. 
Yeah, there's limits. Luis Castillo, a store employee who was working crowd control Tuesday, told BuzzFeed News. But we already ran out of bread. There's no more bread. While many grocery stores and superstores like Walmart and Target are opening more stores every day at the given moment, it's a race to resupply and stores can quickly be exhausted of food necessities. Food staple shortages are also being reported in North Texas, 200 miles from, away from Houston. Uh, for instance, this is, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Twitter. I'm sorry, no, it's Facebook. Uh, a Facebook, an embedded Facebook post that says Walmart on Main Street is completely out of milk. And this is uh, Louisville, Texas, the city of Louisville. Uh, Ron Neff, a professor of environmental health and engineering at John Hopkins University, is concerned about those not able to get to the stores. In Houston, as everywhere, the impacts are not equally felt, she says. People with lower incomes, people who are elderly, with disabilities, with medically necessary diets may be particularly hit by this kind of situation and really have quite severe food security threats to them. Um, again, there's so much help right now in Houston. Um, I did recently post, uh, I reposted something on uh, one of my friends uh, that, you know, on the Prepper website page uh, about Rockport and how bad Rockport was doing because, you know, Houston was getting so much information or so much, uh, so much of the help. And so that's one thing to consider out there. Uh, man, I can't, I, it's hard for me to focus tonight. Uh, I'm getting there, sorry. Um, so Rockport is, is really uh, in, you know, dire situations. And so um, there, a lot of people are, are getting taken care of right now. The problem is going to be, like this professor mentions here, these elderly people, the people with disabilities, is when everyone starts getting back to work and things start coming back to some kind of quote-unquote normalcy it's still not normal there's a lot of uh you know a lot of craziness going on and, and still a lot of people you know uh, flooded homes and those kinds of things um I've, I've seen a lot of people and actually you know i've talked about going to the doctor i went back on my follow-up today and uh, just getting there was crazy and he was talking about how people are not uh, coming into uh, appointments because they can't get there uh, because it takes too long or there was an emergency appointment that, that was supposed to be there at 8.30 and didn't get there till 10.30 because they couldn't get there and he's having to shorten the hours of his office because they're just there's nobody's com nobody's coming in and he's just paying people and so um, you know you're seeing that I know that I'm hearing people um, oh and then he he was saying that uh, normally, uh, a trip home for him is about 15 minutes. is taking about an hour and a half for him to get home every day. And then uh, I was seeing reports of other people and people that I know that are stuck in traffic for hours right now uh, because of the situation with uh, high water still on uh, on the beltways and freeways and stuff like that. So um, you know the big the big uh, deals are going to be where people are going to start really feeling it are, are going to be when um, you know people start getting back to this normalcy uh, as much as possible and then there's not all the help that's around. So uh, let's continue on. One of the others is bleach. Most people may not have even considered this essential post-disaster item. In the aftermath, bleach and chemical disinfectants are hard to come by. Cleaning flooded homes and questionable water, so and qu questionable water sources are making this 
a high-demand commodity. Sanitation is one of the most important facets of staying prepared. After a hurricane hits, overloaded sewage systems will start spewing raw sewage. Diseases such as cholera are contracted through contaminated water and food and often occur as a result of poor hygiene and sanitation practices. Moreover, cleaning supplies like gloves and garbage bags are also needed by many in the disaster area and those in the relief efforts have all listed cleaning supplies as a needed item. The only problem with bleach is that um, bleach, uh, you know, it, eventually sitting on the shelf, it will go bad. And so, uh, you know, that's something to always consider there. Um, I don't know if making a bleach, you know, we, talk, we talked about that before in the past, uh, you know, making it with, uh, with shock. Uh, if, if making that is as powerful as the bleach that you would buy. Um, I would I would think so maybe I don't know uh, maybe that's something that we, people need to look into uh, because I know that a lot of preppers are storing shock to be able to make bleach uh, later on down the road so um, something to consider there maybe I need to go back and find that article and uh, look at the percentages there uh, toilet paper hurricane survivors may have grossly underestimated how much toilet paper they need to ride out the aftermath. Toilet paper is used every day, and when it runs out, things can get nasty. On average, consumers use 8.6 sheets per trip, a total of 57 sheets per day. Multiply that by a week-long storm and a family of five, and you run out quickly. Due to the high need for toilet paper, it is flying off the shelves, and restocking has obviously become an issue. And that is something you do not want to run out of, right, is, is toilet paper. Now that many disasters, and there's a couple of links here uh, embedded, uh, I guess, from Twitter. Now that many disaster victims are evacuating the area, stores in North Texas are also seeing a shortage. Home repair supplies. The last thing on people's minds was how massive the cleanup from Hurricane Harvey would be. But as we have often noted, hurricanes are unpredictable in nature, and this one threw a wrench in many preparedness plans. While thinking about how they were going to clean up after floodwaters ravaged their homes wasn't something anyone really considered beforehand, it, it is now at the forefront. As a result of the extensive, extensive damage, home repair supplies are in desperate need. Plywood, tools, wheelbarrows, large plastic containers, trash bags, buckets, generators, and other disaster necessities are being purchased. In fact, at Lowe's, Rick Newdorf, the re retailer's emergency command center operations manager said generators were in such high demand that some stores are practically selling generators off the back of the truck because people have been waiting in the stores for the generators to arrive. The reality is that the vast majority of people have about three days of food and water at home when a prolonged disaster strikes it upends the stability of the entire system of just-in-time delivery. This is why using a layered approach to preparedness planning that includes short-term, long-term, and worst-case scenario considerations is paramount. What Hurricane Harvey has taught us is that devastating events, while so improbable that they may happen just once in a hundred years, are still, in a real, are still a real and present danger. Go, uh, go check that out over at readynutrition.com. And um, there's a lot of links there and tests. Tess, uh, you know, always has um, you know good articles and links that you can uh, check out. The next article comes to us from SkilledSurvival.com, and uh, the title is 10 Best Survival Tents for Sur 10 Best Survival Tents for Survival and Preparedness." Now, uh, I'm not necessarily reading this article for 
the specific the ten best tents. Uh, you know, I'm going to briefly touch on those because in um, the article doesn't go into so much detail uh, about those specific tents. But there is a lot of information on just how to maintain your your tent and things to consider. Uh, and you know, if some if you're not someone who is uh, you know, you, you go camping all the time uh, and you've never looked into something like this, you might not know this information. And so I think this is valuable information for uh, preppers to know. All right. So uh, again, 10 best survival tents for survival and preparedness. Here we go. Shelter is fundamental to survival because having a roof over your head and wall surrounding you keeps you dry, warm, safe, and private. But securing a shelter is not always a simple task in a survival situation. Sure, you might get lucky and find an uninhabited cave void of wild animals, or you might be able to build a shelter out of branches and logs if you're a survival expert, or you could stumble into a vacant cabin. Anything's possible. These are all valid options for securing shelter, but it's relying on luck, and luck in survival is always a terrible idea. And most of us are not survival masters, which means you'll want to, you want the next best option to take a shelter with you. No, I'm not talking about a mobile home or RVs. I'm talking about survival tents. Tents are one of humankind's most ingenious survival technologies. Tents have been around for the last 43,000 years. To put that in perspective, we understood how to make portable shelters before we learned how to cultivate agriculture. And we've had a lot of time to perfect tent technologies. Today, tents are a thousand times more sophisticated, more elaborate, and more specific. But that's a problem. The selection process is overwhelming. Everything from group tents for an eight-person family to tiny tents for a single occupant. Plus, there are cold weather tents, minimalist tents, insect tents, rain tents, high altitude tents, backpacking tents, car camping tents, tents for truck beds. No matter what situation or adventure, there's a tent designed for that purpose. So, you have to know what you want and what you're looking for within your survival tent budget. Skilled Survival Survival Tent Guide. The bottom line is you came to this comprehensive Skilled Survival Buyer's Guide to find the survival tent that's right for you. This guide will cover the following. Things to look for in a survival tent. Considerations to take into account. A list of the highest rated and most acclaimed survival tents. An overview of how to clean and care for your tent. And a brief history of tents. What to look for in a survival tent. Here are the essential features you want for any tent, especially for survival. Durability. Modern fabrics are engineered to be highly durable, but some tents are more bomb-proof than others. The more durable and extreme environments, the better. Weight. Heavy tents are a pain in the back. If you're carrying one in your pack, every ounce matters. When it comes to survival, a lighter weight, portable tent is your best bet. Even for larger family-sized tents, if all things, other things are equal, I take the lighter one every time. Ease of setup. There are tents out there that seem to take an engineering degree to erect. These elaborate tents are time consuming and frustrating to set up. Instead, try to find a tent that's easy and intuitive. Setting your tent up quickly and without headaches is a significant survival advantage. Shape and color. The shape isn't all that important unless you'll be in high wind terrain locations like the side of a mountain. In these situations, a low-profile aerodynamic tent is best. But for survival, color is the more strategic choice. It depends on if you're trying to stay hidden or if you're more interested in rescue. 
Wilderness Survival versus SHTF Survival. For SHTF Survival, you'll want a natural colored tent to blend in with your surroundings. For a situation where rescue is desirable, like high altitude mountain climbing adventures, bright orange is best for high visibility. Vestibules. A tent with a vestibule is like having a mud room for your tent. Vestibules allow you to keep your muddy boots and gear outside the tent, but still kept it protected from the rain and snow. Vestibules are a handy tent feature. Rain protection. If a tent doesn't come with a rain fly, it should be made of a single waterproof wall. Nothing sucks worse than waking up trapped inside of a wet bag. So make sure you investigate the waterproof properties of any tent you buy. The number of occupants. If you have a family you intend on sheltering inside of a survival tent, you'll have to go big. Big enough so everyone can fit inside. For me, I prefer a two-person tent because it's spacious for one, yet I can fit a friend if need be. Some people like single-person tents, but I find them a little claustrophobic. This decision is all about personal needs and preferences. The price. Some tents are insanely expensive, while others are cheap. Fit the tent you buy to your budget, but remember, you usually get what you pay for when it comes to gear like this. If you go super cheap, expect cheap results. The many types of survival tents. There's a tent out there for every possible survival situation. It would be impossible to list all the brands and models in a single article. So here's a list of the more popular types of tents available. The Four Season Tent. These tents are good for year-round use. They have the waterproofing necessary to get you through a wet spring, insulation to get you through fall and even winter, and removable rain flies to help with cooling capabilities in the hot summer. Cold Weather Tents. These tents are engineered from the ground up to pack in heat like an oven and keep the cold at bay. Some of them even come with little stoves or heaters you can set up inside. Cold weather tents are no joke. Cold weather tents can be expensive since they are so high tech. Backpacking tents. Designed to be ultra lightweight and super compact, these tents are my personal favorite for survival. They can fit inside of a bug out bag. They're designed to be carried long distance. They take up minimal space, you can set them up quickly, and they break down with ease. Backpacking tents are ideal for survival on the move. Dome tents. These are designed specifically to give you lots of room. Most professional expedition tents are dome tents. That way, they can fit as many people and as much gear as possible. Because they don't use any flat walls, they also work well for high altitude, high wind survival situations. The tactical bivy. Bivvies are the ultimate in tent minimalism. Bivvies are little more than a body sack to keep mild elements at bay. They look like tent coffins, but, they highly, but they're highly packable and life-saving in a pinch. We recommend the Tact Bivy by Survival Frog. The Bivy comes in an easy-to-carry pouch and weighs less than 5 ounces. This Tact Bivy is also made with NASA technology material called Mylar. This material traps your own body heat to keep you warm even in freezing temps. The perfect survival tent for cold weather emergencies. I think everyone should add one to their glove box. It can save your life. However, bivvies are not a survival shelter for the long-term haul, but it's the perfect survival tent for surprise emergency situations. Teepees. Made famous by the Plains Indians, teepees have been a popular style for tents for a long time. Even today, there's a modern material tent designed in the shape and form as a teepee. One single vertical pole holds up the walls, which are staked 
to the ground around it. Yurts. Yurts were invented by nomadic tribesmen in Central Asia. Today they are popular in mountainous regions around the world. They are anything but portable though. Most modern yurts sit on a concrete foundation and need a full work crew to build it. But once a yurt is up, it's the ultimate in permanent tent life. They are spacious and stay warm when it's cold out and cool when it's hot. Ideal for long-term survival. The 10 best survival tents. This order of the list is from smallest to largest in capacity. Number one is the Winteriol. It's a one-person tent. This personal size small tent is both lightweight and very affordable. It's good for three seasons and uses an easy two-hoop system for simple, quick setup. Pack this tent only weighs 3.8 pounds. Number two, the Snug Pack Lonosphere, a one-person tent. Another personal tent, this lightweight tent, is perfect for your bug-out bag. It is durable, and even if you do manage to damage it, it comes with a small repair kit so you can fix the tent on the go. Number three is the Teton Sports Mountain Ultra. It's a one-person tent. Another single-person tent, this innovative design, uses only one lightweight pole. This first wall this first wall is a light protective mesh that allows users to sleep under full view of the stars, but it also includes a durable and waterproof rainfly for wet or cold weather. Number four is a Kelty TN. It's a two-person tent. This double wall tent packs down to 4.5 pounds, still easily packable for a backpacking trip or survival excursion. The rainfly is waterproof and can be removed. The underwall is a mesh insect net. One of the unique features of this tent is its stargazing window on the rainfly. It allows you to watch the stars and sky above your tent without removing the rainfly. No, not a survival feature, but still awesome. Number five is the North Face Summit Series Assault, two-person tent. This North Face, North Face Summit tent is the one I use, and it has served me well for almost five years. It uses two lightweight crossing poles and sets up incredibly fast. It's a two-person single wall tent, which is waterproof and warm. It comes with an attachable vegetable and breaks down into only 3.25 pounds. The Assault Series was designed for high-altitude, high-intensity expeditions and is still a very durable and extremely versatile tent. Not only that, but North Face offers a lifetime warranty on their equipment. So if there's ever a problem with your Assault Series tent, you can get it repaired or replaced without any worries. Number six, the Nemo Bungalow. It's a four-person tent. The four-person uh, tent combines lightweight minimalist with function and durability. This tent, the tent bag comes with Velcro pockets and compression straps, so no more fighting with the poles and rainfly when it's time to get back on the go. Number seven is the Kelty Grand Mesa. Four-person tent. This four-person tent uses a snap-on pole design that makes setup fast. When packed away, it's 7.5 pounds. The tent is suitable for any or for rainy conditions and high winds, but functions just as well in warm weather. Number eight is the Marmot Halo, or Halo, six-person tent. A spacious tent, it will comfortably fit six people. Unfortunately, any tent this size starts to get pretty heavy. I wouldn't recommend this tent for your bug-out bag. Number nine is the Coleman Sun Dome. It's a six-person tent. Coleman has been a trusted brand name in survival and camping gear for decades. Their equipment is durable, reliable, and their Sundome tent series is no exception. The 10 foot by 10 foot floor sleeps six people. It's incredibly easy to set up, requiring only two lightweight poles, and for its size, it's affordable versus tent of similar size. 
Number 10 is the Coleman Red Canyon eight-person tent. The largest tent on our list, this eight-person survival tent, is 17 feet by 10 feet and is tall enough to stand up inside. The Coleman WeatherTech system is guaranteed to keep people inside dry and safe from wet weather. An airflow flow port allows fresh air to move through the tent without sacrificing insulation. There are even room dividers inside the tent. The, these enable users to create several rooms for maximum privacy. All right. Uh, next is caring for and cleaning your tent. The better you care for your tent, the longer it will last. And since most tents aren't cheap, it's in your best financial interest to make your survival tent last as long as possible. Cleaning. Use a non-abrasive sponge, cold water, and non-detergent soap and wipe down the interior and exterior of the tent gently. Scrub off any cake dirt and make sure to wash away any mold or mildew you might find. Clean the zippers and seams the same way as well. Never machine wash your tent. That's the fastest way to ruin it for good. The modern lightweight materials are great for wind and rain but can't stand up to machine wash abuse. Once you've wiped down your tent, allow it to air dry outside in direct sunlight if possible. The UV rays help to kill any remaining germs left over from your most recent adventure or survival endeavor. Care for your survival tent. When you get a new tent, it's imperative to read the instructions. No matter how many times you set up a tent, everyone is different. Don't risk ruining it before you ever get to use it. Be gentle with the zippers and poles. While they are designed to be durable and endure some abuse, they are not unbreakable. Busting a zipper or breaking a tent pole is a relatively, relatively easy fix if you're in town. But if you're out in the wilderness surviving, replacing those is not so easy. So take care of them and be as gentle with them as possible. Never store a tent wet. Often when you get back from the wilderness, your tent might be damp, either from rain or snow or dew or perspiration. Whatever the cause, you need to make sure you're, you let the tent air dry for a while before you roll it up and pack it away. If moisture gets locked in with the tent, mold and mildew will begin to grow. Whenever you're storing your tent, roll it neatly and tightly. Don't stuff it away in a sleeping bag. The advice is sleeping. The advice is important because it keeps the material from crumpling and creasing all over. Creases can create weak points in the nylon's waterproofing, weakening its durability. When you roll it up neatly, you minimize the number of wrinkles in the tent's fabric. Use a footprint or tarp underneath. It will increase the life of your survival tent by years if you use a protective layer underneath it. Most tents have an individually sized footprint that you can buy separately, but there are also standard footprints that will fit most tents. And if you want to go old school, just purchase a tarp and fold it to the size dimensions of your tent. Avoid leaving your tent in direct sunlight for extended periods of time. Sometimes you can't prevent this, but if you can, it's good to try and keep your tent shaded for most of the time it's erect. Direct sunlight has its benefits when you're air drying your tent, but long exposure can mess with the chemistry of the waterproofing. Leave the shoes outside. It's not just common courtesy, but it prevents your boots from tearing holes in the floor. Also, it keeps excess dirt and debris out, which is a benefit unto itself. Shake your tent out before rolling it up. Getting all the dirt and leaves and twigs and insects out of the tent before you roll it up is essential. It keeps the tent clean and reduces the frequency with which you need to clean it. A brief history of tents. The oldest evidence of people using tents was from about 40,000 BC. 
40,000 BC, humans were at that point roaming and hunting mammoths, which was what they used to make their tents. Mammoth hide tents were exactly, weren't exactly lightweight. They were good at insulating our ancestors from the harsh weather of the tundras. Animal hides had another benefit. Besides being warm, the oils and fats that people harvested from the animals were used as waterproofing. They didn't have Gore-Tex-like materials back then, so they had to get crafty. By infusing their tents with natural oils, they created a water-repellent surface. Around 450 BC, yurts and teepees were the highest-tech tents on the planet. They functioned as portable caves for nomadic people. By 300 BC, the Romans had adopted tent technology out of pure necessity. Their armies were so massive and moved so frequently, tents became an important Roman technology. The Romans used goat or calf skin for their army tents, which usually slept around eight soldiers apiece. There is a, a graphic here that you might be interested in, uh, a brief history of the tent. Fast forward to World War, World War II. The next biggest innovation in tent history was underway. Ibhard Kobel designed a tent like the Scandinavian Lavoux tents, which were like the European teepees. This tent was banned in Germany during the war, but quickly became, a popu became popular in German scouting after. Then in 1951, Eureka's self-standing draw, draw tight tent changed the game forever. This tent was the first built using aluminum frame and synthetic material for the walls. Since then, tents have been getting lighter weight and more advanced every year. Tents have come a long way since the days of mammoth hide, but the idea is still the same. Portable weather weatherproofing covering. Final word. Tents are one of the most important survival inventions in human history. They've changed the way we hunt, the way we interact with the outdoors, and the way we survive in the wild. The idea is straightforward and elegant, and with modern technology, our tents have become marvels of engineering. But finding the right survival tent is no simple endeavor. Honestly, the best way to meet all your survival needs would be to buy several tents. A tent for bugging out, one for camping, one for backpacking, one for the whole family. But for most of us, that financially is unrealistic, which means you need to figure out which survival tent can meet as many of your survival needs as possible. Whatever tent you choose, having a survival tent isn't a matter of comfort, it's a question of survival necessity. Make sure that you have a survival tent in your survival gear list. Alright, so um, it's a longer article, but it's really good. And, if, you know, I didn't really know that, uh, because I was a Boy Scout camp for many years, and we, uh, when we ran the group home, we took girls camping, um, and those kinds of things, um, I didn't know that about the crinkling of um, crinkling up of the the tent. I uh, didn't realize that that would break down the water, the waterproof you know walls and or you know the waterproof material or durability on that. So uh, that's interesting to know why you want to uh, make sure that when you break down your tent, you fold it up nice and neat and uh, as straight as possible. And uh, so that might take a little bit of practice depending on the size of your tent. But, uh, you know, some of these tents that he was uh, recommending, you know, 1 through 10 here, uh, I mean, they, they look really cool. Um, and so, uh, you know, you might just want to go check those out. But uh, there's a lot of links here. You can come uh, check this out over at skilledsurvival.com. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our next article. Our last article comes to us from AmericanReadout.com. And the title of the uh, article is What Happened to the Christian Warrior? 
And so this is a little bit different, uh, different type of article that I normally read. Uh, more of a spiritual uh, type, uh, some history here as well. And uh, a couple of reasons that I'm reading this one. First, I know there's a lot of Christians who come to Prepper website and a lot of Christians who uh, listen to the podcast. Uh, not everyone, but I know that there's there's a lot. And uh, when I first started in preparedness, it just didn't seem like there was that many out there. But the more that I became familiar with the community, the more I started writing my articles. Uh, when I uh, started doing PrepperChurch.com, uh, I started, you know, a lot of people started contacting me. And so I know that there's more out there than most realize. Um, the other side, the other reason why I want to read it is to just just to help remind us that there are two um, that there's two worlds we're prepping for, right? Uh, we're prepping for this world and we're prepping for the next. And so uh, I think this is a, a good article just to talk about our the times that we're kind of living in, and uh, it brings out a little history as well. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Islamic terrorists are infiltrating the poorest borders of the Western nations of Europe and America. Yet it seems that so-called spokesmen for Christianity are on board with the new religions of tolerance and diversity, whatever happened to the Christian warrior. I'm not talking about warriors who happen to be Christian. I met some in military service and some among the survival and proper communities. Good men for the most part, but their warrior ethos were not about defense of Christendom as much as it was the defense of other re for other reasons, reasons likewise held by teammates who were not Christians. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a difference between Christian warriors and warriors who are Christians. I've been hearing about various Christian churches increasingly rejecting the authority of the Bible with some ending up promoting a warped mix of Islam and Christianity called Chrislam. In recent news, Carr has, some, has come out defending globalist H.R. McMaster, which should tell us all we need to know about the man. Carr certainly isn't a friend of American history or tradition or founding principles. To understand the mindset on the other side, I highly recommend checking out the story of Daniel Sheshista and the DVD Escape from Darkness. He was raised in Iran, taught at the terrorist schools, including a class on beheading, was one of the three founders of the Iranian Revolutionary Army, and helped bringing in Atollah Khomeini into power. When his Islamic faction later lost to another, he was sentenced to death, imprisoned, escaped, later became a Christian, and speaks of his experiences today. He tells of how during his entire upbringing, in all the villages he traveled, which were many since as a boy, he could recite the Quran from memory and was wanted at ceremonial functions. The attitude was that Christians and Jews were so awful that even to bring a glass of water into the house after a Christian or Jew had touched it would make the whole house unclean and require expensive purification from an imam. When a game of chance resulted in a drawn fortune announcing that he was to someday become a Christian, that was an offense worth nearly beating the life out of the schoolmate who pinned it. When he married, the most impressive thing about his assault rifle-wielding wife was that her most fervent prayer was that Allah would someday let her kill a Christian or a Jew. He explains the mindset that followers are taught never to question the followers are never are taught never to question their leaders. 
that the jihadists are taught that their movement is genuinely about true freedom, though to bring that freedom to all, they must bring down America because it represents the head of their enemies and the main defense of Christianity in the modern world and of Israel. Dedicated Islamic warriors with this mindset are pouring in through the poorest borders of America and Europe. It's not a hot war yet. It's not a cold war. Not like what America experienced with the Soviets. It may be best termed as a silent war. One side is positioning themselves for a killing blow, while the other side strives to remain as vulnerable as possible to prove their trust. When I look around the West today, I ask, where are the Christians with backbones? Where are the men who would fight to defend the Christian world? A conversation around it resulted in me pulling this article to read and share about the Siege of Malta in 1565. It is mainly built from a talk given by historian Michael Davies. It is, a part, it is part 5 of 5 from a lecture series on the Crusades and the full 90 minutes can be viewed in many places on YouTube such as here. Christian or not, it is a critical piece of history no longer taught but well worth 90 minutes of your time on Sunday to listen to. When I was in college, I took a two-semester class specifically on the history of Western civilization. Aside from dates being in the politically correct BCE, ACE format, the only mention of ancient Israel was their contribution of inventing monotheism, and the only mention of Christianity was a single paragraph in a chapter, Caesar and Christ, in which it was just one of many mystery cults which had the good luck to catch on in Rome as a fad. Apparently, Judaism and Christianity now have nothing to do with the rise of Western civilization. In 1565 in Malta, the Caliphate leader, Suleiman uh, the Magnificent, decided he wanted to push further into Europe via Malta. Problem was, the Knights Hospitaller, a Christian military monastic order, had just taken up or exiled residents there. Suleiman's generals took 40,000 Sarsens, to capture the island, including 6,000 elite Janissaries and promised to have the job done in three to five days. The Janissaries were the caliphate equivalent of our Navy SEALs, but with a particularly obscene twist. They were selected by surveying all the young children of Christian living in the caliphate territory. The strongest and brightest were taken to enter the training regiment on par with Spartan effectiveness. At the end, they became Muslim converts. They lived solely to fight, were forbidden to have any family, and moved from battle to battle knowing nothing but war. They had an enormous chip on their shoulder trying to prove their greatness because they were Muslims from despised Christian stock. The defenders consisted of 700 knights among 9,000 civil defenders. The leader was Grand Master de Valet, a knight and monk, a respected tactical genius, Frenchman from Toulouse, age 71. He had even spent a year chained naked to an oar in a Muslim galley after being enslaved by the very admiral who had arrived to participate in the conquest of Malta. In fact, Muslim slavers had been raiding towns all over the Mediterranean and even as far north as Iceland taking white slaves. Malta represented a defensive point to stop further spread of enslavement and conquest. Did they teach you about that period of slavery in modern PC history classes? When the battle began, Devalet said the following to his men, It is the great battle of the cross in the Quran, which is now to be fought. 
A formidable army of infidels are on the point of invading our island. We, for our part, are the chosen soldiers of the cross, and if heaven requires the sacrifice of our lives, there can be no better occasion than this. Let us hasten then, my brothers, to the sacred altar. There we will renew our vows and obtain by our faith in the sacred sacraments that contempt for death, which alone can render us invincible. They sent requests for help to nearby governments, but were told to simply hold the forts themselves. Many secular powers did not want to get involved, and some had even allied with the Turkish Caliphate for their own political and economic gain. When told that help would not come, Divalet told his men, We now know that we cannot look to others for our deliverance. It is only upon God and our own swords that we must rely. Yet this is no reason to be disheartened. Rather the opposite, for it is better to know the truth of one situation than be deceived by specious hopes. Our faith in our and the honor of our order in our own hands, we shall not fail. Turkish artillery and siege weaponry at that time was the most advanced in the world, thanks to all the practice they'd gotten in Muslim conquest with which to refine their technology and their skill. One soldier at the first target, Fort St. Elmo, counted over 6,000 cannon shots in less than a day. The Muslims pounded the walls for almost a month. The Christians were far better defenders than expected. Flame weapons ignited the Janissaries' robes and eliminated over a third of them. Defending St. Elmo was a death sentence, but de Valette found hundreds of volunteers willing each day and had to turn men away from the terminal duty. Eventually, Fort St. Elmo fell after staggering losses to the Muslims. The Muslim general, furious at the expenditure, rounded up all the bodies of Christian knights, nailed them to crosses in mockery of the crucifixion, removed the heads, and floated the crosses across the harbor to the main fort. What did de Valette do? Well, if modern Christianity in America is any indicator, he decided to win the Muslims over by demonstrating the love of Christ through turning the other cheek, then opening the gates to display how welcoming and tolerant he was, and that it, that is why Arabic is the primary language across Europe today. No. Grandmaster de Valette had a spine in his back and iron in his blood. He immediately ordered execution of all Turkish prisoners in the dungeons, beheaded them, loaded the heads into the cannons, and fired Muslim heads at the Muslim forces. Later, when defending a breach in the wall, the 71-year-old man led the charge to push the enemy back and refused medical aid until the area was secure. War is, nece is a necessary evil under the Christian worldview. The scriptures tell Christians not to repay evil for evil, which means they are not to get even or to harm others for the mere reason that others harmed them. However, what does a Christian do when the lives of his family or his countrymen are on the line? When an enemy with a history of bloodlust, enslavement, and brigadandry is at your gates, where the civilians huddle, do you preach peace and tolerance? Or do you grab your sword and slaughter every last offender, seeking to harm the innocent you defend, until the enemy finally turn tail and run? Amen. The siege of Malta is considered a crucial point of history. If Malta had fallen, the caliphate would have swept into Europe and enslaved far more territory. Other Christian families would have had to submit to letting their most gifted children be taken away to become the elite of the enemy. Instead, a few men stood firm when no secular power would aid them. They did it for their faith, and as an act out of their faith, expecting death. And their courage inflicted losses second only to the Spartans of Thermopylae, and changed the course of history for an entire continent. When the enemy is in our midst, turns to open war, what are you going to do? 
Where will you be defending your family? We pray you'll lead your loved ones to the American Redoubt with other Christian warriors. Gather your swords. The time is nigh. So um, I, I know this could uh, this will send different ideas and different uh, uh, emotions through different people. Some people are like Todd. Really, you're going to go here? Um, you know, Christians are supposed to love and be tolerant. Um, you know, the way that I look at it is on an individual basis. Christians should be loving and, and, and tolerant. And so, for instance, when I was an assistant principal, I, uh, there was a lot of people, there was a lot of Muslims that, that were in my school. And they were very nice. They were very caring. They were very gracious to me. They were very appreciative to me. Uh, we would talk. Um, you know, things went really, really well. The issue is when um, you talk about um, coming together in in mass numbers, right? And so when your your decision or their decision to change your way of living, and they want to inflict that on you, what are you going to do? And so that's something that you know what I I truly I have struggled with before in the past, and I know other people will struggle with uh, as well. Uh, I don't have a problem defending my family and defending and protecting. I think that is the responsibility as uh, as uh, as Christians and as a Christian man that you have. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you have that responsibility to them to be that protector. And so what are you going to do? I mean, are we going to go out and start looking for a fight? You know, are we going out and doing that? No, but I think this is part of uh, the world that we're living in because we have all these things that are coming down, right? We have uh, all the we have the economic th- issues that are in play. We have nuclear war with the crazy little man in North Korea that's in play. We have all these natural disasters that's in play, and we have you know this issue here where uh, if people were honest, there are some parts of our country right now where there is big Muslim populations that people are you know don't wouldn't go into and and uh, they might not be uh quote unquote no go zones but they're getting very close to it and uh you know up north and and it's 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 crazy up there so um you know it it's it's it would be very weird and strange for you know uh to, to be talking about that because usually when we talk about something like that we've talked about other places and and but you know the, the the reality is is that there's places in france you know that are no-go zones there's places in europe that are no-go zones and uh why why is that it's because you know people would be afraid to go in there because that area is being ruled ruled by a different way of thinking and uh so um Something to think about, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to cause this big old uproar, um, but you know, I'm sure that, that does. <laughs> again, uh, there'll be people. I'm just picturing people who have emailed me in the past when I'm talking here and, and different things. It, it's amazing <laughs> the email that you get when you post something online. Uh, you know, it's 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 really funny. But so I'm imagining all that. But something to be thinking about. And uh, not to be trigger happy. I'm not talking about being trigger happy. I'm talking about what do you believe in. I'm talking about what do you what are you willing to fight for. What's important. Um, it's just you know this world is is crazy, and uh, you know we need to put a little bit of thought into those kinds of things. I think it's healthy. So I appreciate that that article there. Um, I would like to close this this podcast out just a little bit different. 
I mean, normally I talk about sharing out uh, the website or the podcast and the episodes and, and uh, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all that. Um, with all the craziness that's going on right now, I'd really like to close out just in a, in a word of prayer. And uh, so if, uh, if uh, you would oblige me on that, I'd like to pray for all the things that are going on and uh, the people that are in the midst of it and people that are helping. All right, so let's do that. Father, I just thank you so much that you are a good God. I thank you so much that you have created this world. And when you created it, it was good and it was great. And we we messed it up. We allowed sin to enter the world and, and craziness began to, to happen because of that. Lord, I come before you right now on the behalf of our country and our nation and all the things that are going on. Lord, we have fires that are that are raging, that are destroying homes, um, some that have been man-made and others that are natural, but have gotten beyond the ability of firefighters to care for them and to put them out. We ask for your help, Lord. We pray for rain. We pray for when to settle down. We pray for the resources to be able to take care of those things. Father, we have places in this country where there's been swarms of earthquakes, and I'm sure that... Uh, uh, gets people uh, keeps people on edge of what could be going on, and so we ask you, Lord, for calmness there, and and so uh, that we wouldn't, that people wouldn't be so anxiety filled, but uh, would rely on you, Lord. We have uh, hurricanes and and things going on, Lord. The, we have first the the recovery uh, down on on the Gulf Coast, Lord, uh, from Texas all the way to Louisiana, and all the people that have. Uh, you know that have been hurt and have lost their livelihoods, that have lost their homes, that have lost their businesses. Lord God, they've lost everything. They've even lost family members. Lord, we just pray for them right now. We pray for your comfort and for your peace. Lord, I thank you right now that you would just help them uh, to get their the, their lives back together, that things would come back together for them, Lord God, and they'd start to be able to rebuild. Thank you for all the help, Lord God, all the, the people that came from all over, individuals and organizations that have come to help out. And there's still such a great need. There's still people without water. There's still people that can't get into their homes. There's still there's going to be people for, for months and maybe even years, Lord God, that feel the ramifications of this down here on the Gulf Coast. And we just pray that your hand would be uh, be with them. I pray, Lord God, that they would not be forgotten after just uh, a few weeks, Lord. And we thank you for that. Thank you for all the first responders who have been here and uh, who have helped out. We pray blessing on them that a lot of the times even uh, not taking care of their own uh, houses and families because they were out doing their duty. And Father, right now we pray for Florida and we pray for uh, the East Coast, Lord God. I pray for all the other islands and, and, and all the other, you know, Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands and all the other smaller islands, Lord, that have been hit in Cuba, Lord God, that, that, uh, that, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We still don't know the trek of this hurricane, Lord God, but we pray that you would uh, move mildly in the midst of it. Lord, we ask that you would pull that off, uh, as some of the models say, going e- further east. Lord, that would be that would be great if it went completely further east into back into the Atlantic. Lord God, and so we just we thank you if that's if that is within your will. But Lord, until then, until we know where this hurricane is headed, I pray that people are smart. People are get prepared. People heed evacuation notices if they need to, Lord. And that, uh, you know, people are in, in the midst of it all, that people are acting like um, 
people who would um, uh, be smart and be prepared and act in kindness as much as possible and in love and and uh, not uh, not be uh, evil in trying to prepare for this hurricane, Lord. We thank you that you're always in control even when uh, things look like they're out of control. Lord, we pray for this, this economy. We pray for our leaders. We pray that they would make good decisions, Lord God, and that they would make decisions that would benefit the whole country. Father, I pray for all the craziness that are, that's out there in other countries, Lord, in North Korea and other things that are happening, Lord. We know that you are, again, you are in control. So, Father, we just thank you that uh, we can rely on you, that uh, we can do our best, we can we can prep, we can do everything, Lord God, that we can physically do and, and mentally do on our own and then allow you to take care of all the rest, Lord God, because uh, you are all-powerful. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.